Hello and welcome to the British Chambers podcast channel. We're delighted to bring you a second season of in-depth discussions and conversations with our members and high-profile speakers, ranging from topics like trade, fintech, arts, sports, and more within Singapore, ASEAN, and the UK. Thank you for your support, and we hope you enjoy today's podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of In Conversation with me, David Kelly. Today's session is really special as we're recording this between land and sea. My guest today is Commodore Steve Morehouse, OBE of the Royal Navy, commander of the United Kingdom Carrier Strike Group. The Carrier Strike Group, or CSG, is currently on a seven and a half month mission of engagements with UK allies and regional partners and testing the capabilities that the CSG can bring to bear in the region. Led by HMS Queen Elizabeth, the first of the Royal Navy's two new 65,000 tonne aircraft carriers, it is the first operational deployment of the UK Carrier Strike Group. Commodore, it is an immense pleasure to have you with us today. Thank you so, so much for your time. David, no, thank you. It's, it's an absolute pleasure to be able to join you from, uh, from the other side of the world, literally. Oh, absolutely wonderful. It would be great to know a little bit about you, Commodore, if that's okay. Can you tell our listeners a bit about a bit about you and a bit about your career in the Royal Navy? Yep, certainly. I, I, I was very fortunate to join the Royal Navy almost straight from school. The career advisor had come to the school. and At first, I saw it as an opportunity to, to bunk off lessons, to go and listen to, to the Navy career advisor and the Air Force and the Army. And, and after a period of time, I, I selected the Navy and went through the Admiralty Interview Board process and was, was fortunate to join on, on what was then called a university cadet scheme. So um, my, my gap year, so to speak, was, was spent at Britannia Royal Naval College. And on completion of that, um, I was able to go to university as, as a naval officer. So uh, my parents were really hugely grateful because it meant that um, I was able to, uh, to get through university without too much debt being paid as a naval officer. And then I immediately started my flying training and joining the fleet air arm once I'd graduated. And I spent a fantastic five years or so living down in Cornwall, uh, working with the fleet air arm uh, and 849 squadron, primarily based from HMS Illustrious. Uh, and, and then from there, I transferred across into, into the general service and got a bridge watchkeeping certificate, which allowed me to keep a watch on a bridge. And that then transpired into uh, the warfare certificate for the ops room. And, and before I knew it, I was, I was fortunate to be selected to, to command a small patrol vessel. And from there, it moved on a Type 23 frigate, HMS Lancaster, HMS Ocean, um, which was then the fleet flagship and our helicopter carrier. And then both Prince of Wales and Queen Elizabeth, the two new Queen Elizabeth class carriers, before finding myself here as the commander of the strike group. Wow, what an amazing career. And, and you know, I've, I've had a little bit of experience working with the Royal Navy in a, in a previous life. But many people sort of see grey ships and automatically think about defence, don't they, and sort of protecting the UK. But the Royal Navy does, it does so much more, doesn't it? Can you talk about some of the humanitarian and political missions that the Royal Navy supports globally? Uh, absolutely. And, and my, my first command, HMS 7, was actually in charge of the fishery protection duty, uh, which I think is still one of the oldest tasks that the Royal Navy has undertaken. Goes, you know, it's been going on for hundreds of years. So there we were actually working for, not for the Ministry of Defence, but for the, for the fisheries agency uh, around the UK. You know, hugely interesting, an area of, of, of industry uh, and commerce that I simply had no idea about until... Till I got involved. 
But more broadly around the world, you'll see naval vessels undertaking operations across the spectrum. You know, we have units in the Caribbean there for our overseas territories that are primed to support humanitarian during that core hurricane season. And, and then further east, equally, we've had vessels supporting typhoons and, and the devastation that's caused in, in Southeast Asia. And, he, and even here within the strike group, a number of the visits that the ships have been undertaking are absolutely in support of, of wider government objectives. And whether that's hosting or sponsoring diplomatic gatherings or supporting the prosperity agenda, economics, whatever, you know, the, the, the Navy is, uh, is very much a convening factor, a magnet for discussions on a whole host of different issues. Wow. And, and, it, and it's not just about the ships, is it? I mean, the RN is a, it's an absolutely huge organisation. Yeah, very much so. I mean, a, a, a company, so to speak, of 30,000 people or so, uh, within it, it has, you know, its own army, so to speak, with, with the Royal Marines. It runs a nuclear industry with the submarine service. Uh, it runs its own a, uh, aviation element through the fleet air arm. Uh, and of course, then the headline of aircraft carriers, frigates, destroyers, patrol vessels, survey ships, uh, university ships, and I, and I probably missed some others out in there. So it's an incredibly diverse community that, that, that comes together inside these the metal boxes, so to speak, um, in, in a village community where, where the spirit and ethos, you know, is, is so, so strong. I, I think I think just just sort of highlighting that Commodore. Um, I was I was very lucky as a civilian to witness firsthand a Thursday at war via the flag officer sea training or the FOST team in, in my previous organisation. And I think I think I might have actually been on your ship as well, HMS Lancaster, at the time. It is amazing to see all different parts of the armed forces come together. How how do you communicate and engage with other other areas of the armed forces to to support the UK agenda? From the single unit, that the engagement with other areas tends to be quite tactical. But as you move further up, but what's increasingly important is just making sure that the UK defence, its efforts overseas are, are coordinated and joined up. So particularly on this deployment, we've worked closely in the planning with the Royal Air Force and the Army in, in ensuring that our activity is is complementary to one another. I think, you know, in years gone by, we could well have been guilty of bumping into one another in overseas countries and not realizing that the Air Force were here at the same time. Here, it's much, much more coordinated. Um, you know, and indeed, the squadron of F-35 aircraft we have on board is a Royal Air Force squadron. And, and the personnel on there are drawn from both the Navy and the Air Force. So, you know, what better way of, of showing just the efficiency and the joined-up nature that we now have? Oh, it's, it's an amazing, it's amazing organisation. Just, just turning to um, the CSG or the, the Carrier Strike Group, can you tell our listeners a little bit about, um, I'm not, not going to ask you where you are for obvious reasons, but can you tell our listeners about the Carrier Strike Group's mission and sort of what you're doing on deployment? So this deployment was the first operational deployment of the strike group. Queen Elizabeth you know, has been out sea for, for a couple of years or so, but to date, all of the activity has been the training and, and generating the capability. And on each time that she's gone to sea, the, the scale of the group and the complexity of the activity has slowly increased. And, and it culminated in May at the, at the start line in Portsmouth when we deployed on the inaugural deployment. And, and the number one mission really was just to prove the capability. Uh, and at its most simplistic, just to, to reassure ministers that, you know, that, that they, they'd got what they paid for. And, and by that, I mean, you know, that fifth generation aircraft launching from a fifth generation aircraft carrier, 
able to deliver effect, you know, at range and shore being delivered from the maritime. And that, that's all supported by a range of frigates, destroyers, submarines, auxiliary shipping and, a, and other aviation. Um, you know, it's a hugely complex, dynamic beast that changes its size and shape every day as frigates and destroyers come and go and do lots of other tasks. And, and this deployment has been all about proving that as a concept. Over the seven and a half months, we will visit and engage and exercise with over 40 different nations. You know, we've operated from, from the Atlantic through the Mediterranean, Red Sea and Indian Ocean, and, and now as we speak out you know, in the Pacific and the Philippine Sea. So a journey of 12,000 miles or so to get here, and, and we'll come all the way back. So just even sustaining this entity that far from home is, is a huge, huge challenge. Uh, and of course, as everybody will well know, you just you sprinkle a little bit of COVID in, in that at the same time, and that's just simply added to the challenge that we face. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean well, I mean, that sounds sounds absolutely amazing. There, there must be an awful lot to think about in in terms of everything that's going on in terms of the assets as part of the group. What what is the makeup of the CSG? I mean, how how many assets are part of the group at the moment? The strike group itself comprised centered around the flagship HMS Queen Elizabeth. Um, and with on board Queen Elizabeth, we have two squadrons of F-35 jets, one from the Royal Air Force 617 Squadron, and one from the U.S. Marine Corps, uh, VMFA-211, which again just shows, um, I think, the level of complexity and the level of integration with our United States colleagues. Uh, we have uh, Merlin helicopters on board here. And then supporting uh, and as critical parts, Two Type 45 destroyers, uh, Defender and Diamond. Two Type 23 frigates, Richmond and Kent. Uh, the fleet auxiliaries, uh, Tide Spring and Fort Victoria. We have a submarine with us. And again, throughout the deployment, international by its design, we've been really privileged to be accompanied throughout by uh, US Navy, Arleigh Burke, the Sullivans, and the Dutch frigate, the Avidson. So, you know, a big group. And as I've said, you know, at any one time, units from there could be disaggregated and dispersed on bespoke and separate tasking, you know, thousands of miles away. And, and from here centrally, we'll control all of that and execute it across thousands of miles, different oceans and, and different time zones. Wow. And, and you, you touched on sort of the interactions with other international partners. And, you know, you, you talked about the U.S. as well. Can you, can you talk a little bit to our members around the engagement with other partners and stakeholders and, and other countries that you work with? Absolutely. So if we, if we break it down into the regions, and it, it started almost on day one. So uh, sailing from the Solent in, in mid-May, you know, the following day, we were launching aircraft that were going into France to work with the French Air Force to develop relationships there. So from day one, we were already working with allies and partners. The Mediterranean, as you can imagine, was, was absolutely centered around NATO and thickening that relationship. And we had our frigates and destroyers working with the standing NATO forces. Our aircraft were working with, with Spanish, Italian and French air forces. And as we move further east, you know, that continued. Uh, we had units in the Black Sea visiting Ukraine and, uh, and Georgia into the Balkans. The carrier was supporting uh, UK operations that have been taking place in Iraq and Syria. Uh, we visited Israel and Egypt before pushing through the Suez Canal and, and engaging all the way down the Red Sea, Saudi Arabia, um, and, then, and then a fairly fast passage to come across through the Straits of Malacca. 
where we've interacted with almost every nation you can think of. So, um, and I'm probably going to miss one out now, but, but from Thailand, Malaysia, Singapore, Brunei, uh, Vietnam, uh, period with Republic of Korea, Japan, Canadian assets from their West force have come across and are with us as we speak. Uh, yesterday, uh, we were joined by some ships from the Royal New Zealand Navy, and we're playing with the Royal Australian Navy uh, later on in the week. So almost every partner you can think of, Navy, on, on that trail, we've done work with, exercised with. And then when units have gone alongside in those nations, we've also done wider work in support of the embassies with whatever is important in that particular nation with regard to the bilateral relationship with the UK. Oh, fabulous. And, and how, how long is a, is a typical deployment? How long are you at sea and away from your families in the UK for? They're all being well. We'll be home for Christmas. Um, um, so that, that'll be a sort of total deployment. We, we, we said farewell to our loved ones at the beginning of May. So it'll be seven and a half months that we've been away, which is about standard, maybe a little bit longer than, than usual. But, you know, so incredibly, incredibly challenging for, for sailors. Uh, you know, being away for that long from loved ones, particularly given the, the sort of the difficulties and challenges of COVID, and and you know, it, it's always difficult being away from loved ones. But when they're battling through that, um, and you know, you've got children that are trying to return to school, families that are trying to get back into normality, and we're at the other side of the world, you know, it's hugely, hugely difficult. But uh, but all being well, we're home for Christmas. Oh, fantastic. And I think a lot of us share that, certainly from a Singapore perspective, where a lot of us haven't been able to get home as well. I think we're, you know, we do, we do really, really sympathise with that. And we'll come on to sort of working at sea in a little bit. But before sort of moving on to sort of technology, have you had any issues with freedom of navigation? And for, for those of the listeners that are not aware, this is uh, around the principle of a customary international law that ships flying the flag of any sovereign shall not suffer any interference from other states. Is there, has there been any sort of freedom of navigation issues that you've, you've come across on deployment? No, not really. I mean, you, you'll recall the incidents that reported on the media during our operations in the, in the Black Sea. But it, it's, a, it's a principle that the Royal Navy um, supports and absolutely upholds you know, the UK's policy in that, that freedom of navigation is something, it's an international, uh, internationally recognized law and principle. And wherever we are in the world, you know, we would seek to try and exercise that. And it's, and it's never aimed at a specific nation. It's the concept of freedom of navigation. And as an island nation, we, you know, we are absolutely reliant on trade and maritime trade particularly. And so the free flow of it, wherever it's coming from, is absolutely vital to us. And, you know, and, and one of the, the, the golden threads throughout the deployment is working with those like-minded nations that, uh, that you know, rely on, on, on maritime trade and the free flow of commerce. So um, you know, it, it's something we'll always look to exercise, whether it's here with the strike group or singleton units anywhere else in the world. Commodore, can I can I ask you a, a bit of a silly question? I mean, if you, if you did have an issue with sort of freedom of navigation, how how would you, as the Commodore of the Strike Group, sort of find out about it? I mean, I know that sounds really basic, but you're at sea, you're looking after all of these assets, you've got international partners with you, you're trying to keep all of the crew happy. You know, you, I'm sure you've got lots of technological and engineering challenges that you're overcoming and working through as part of part of the program. I mean, how how does sort of this information sort of come through to you if there's a if there's an issue? So within Queen Elizabeth, I have a cell that uh, maintains a 24-hour-a-day watch, and they're in you know, constant communications with all of the units within the structure. 
you know, when, when I searched for an egg, it was all on, on signals and coming in very slowly um, on, on almost like on a ticker tape uh, system. Now it, it, it's all very modern. It's chat rooms and, and the like. So any instant anywhere, you know, that, that'll be the way it's first reported in and there'll be operating procedures whereby I'll be called to come down and, um, and, and support if it, if it requires my intervention. So that's how an event on the high seas ordinarily would be reported in or an incident of any kind. If we know that we're sending units into an area that may be contested or is likely to, you know, to face a challenge, then we can just, you know, we can increase the watch on that and make sure that you know, we're able to provide the appropriate support to that unit. You know, ordinarily, it, it, it will come with a, with a nation looking to shadow one of our units to try and, you know, accompany them or encourage them not to do it. You know, invariably, that's always safe and professional, and it's and it's a degree of posturing on both sides. But today, in the 21st century technology, it's chat rooms, so it's real time, and and the key thing is often is the imagery and the reporting of it because the, the person out with the person out with, with that imagery first, you know, tends to own the narrative. And if you're behind on that, then it's a challenge just to keep up and actually get what, you know, what we believe to be the truth out there. That's that's really interesting, Commodore. And, you know, you just, you sort of mentioned in the past, it was sort of ticker tape. I guess, you know, with it being a slightly older technology, you would have had a, a bit more time to sort of digest information and, and make a decision. But when things are real time, I guess the length of time you've got to actually make a decision with you know lots and lots of very very important variables must be very 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 quick have you have you seen that change throughout your career absolutely absolutely i, I mean you think back you know only at you know to, to Nelsonian times where you you got your orders and you disappeared for for years on an end and you never really got an update to what your what was going on and was changing uh, politically at all i mean now it's you know we're we're real time so sailors are in constant connectivity with their loved ones. Uh, they can see the news. My senior officers, my admirals and generals and politicians can email direct. We have video conferencing. So so yes, we're at the other side of the world, but but you are you know you are almost next door to one another when it comes to communications. Time zones can make it slightly more challenging. But it, it is sometimes I think I think every commander would say it, it, it's sometimes you can be too close to the seniors, but uh, but it's a, it's a it's huge benefit now that real-time communications allows us to to make effective decisions on the most timely and accurate information. You know, the, the way that we're all digitally connected now does make us much much more effective. Just staying on that sort of theme of technology, uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth is the largest and most powerful vessel ever constructed for the Royal Navy, I believe. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about her capabilities and some of the areas of technological interest that, that we, we, might, we might not know about? Absolutely. I mean, I mean we, we talk about F-35 as a fifth generation aircraft and, and by that, it, it's the advancement of the technology within it from where previous fast jet aircraft have been. And, and, and globally, we'll call Queen Elizabeth a fifth-generation aircraft carrier. And, and, and I think that's, it, that, that's, not, that's not an unreasonable statement at all. Quite often, you'll find that you design a ship, and then years afterwards, the aircraft will come, or vice versa. What we've been fortunate to do here, having had a pause in aircraft carrier capability in the Navy, is we've designed the ship at the same time as the aircraft was coming in. So they are, they've been designed to operate hand-in-glove which has allowed us to make huge efficiencies and embrace technology from, from both the aircraft and the ship. So from the keel up, Queen Elizabeth has been designed, you know, fundamentally to operate this aircraft. 
which is not where other navies that operate F-35 are. They're retrofitting their ships to, to embrace it. So everything from our frigates and destroyers, we've just we've taken technology and used it a little bit more cleverly. So in monitoring and assessing all of our propulsion systems and mechanical engineering systems, a lot more remote monitoring, uh, computer-based systems, you know, that's given, that's giving the captain far, far greater fidelity on what's going on, um, but also allowing him to reduce the headcount and the number of people you use in a safe manner. And that's not taking risk at all. We've embraced much, much greater innovation and technology in, in the firefighting systems. You know, in many ways, lots of these systems are already out there in commercial vessels, but rather than having to send hundreds of sailors into firefighting situations, we can use much cleverer and sophisticated systems that, that arguably uh, cause less damage when, when, when triggered. Uh, we have a weapon handling system on board that is akin to an Amazon warehouse that moves the ammunition around from the magazine up to where we need it for the aircraft without sort of the human getting involved. So the days of sailors stood next to each other, passing a, a, a bomb from one to the other, um, have gone. So that's allowing us to have a headcount on here. It's about one third of the number of people that are on an American aircraft carrier. Um, you know, most most academics and military practitioners would agree at the moment now we're probably able to offer about 80% of the capability of a U.S. aircraft carrier with one third of the people. So, you know, I think that's a huge, huge, you know, pat on the back for us. Um, and clearly, people cost money, but we can use those people in other ships and platforms at the same time. So, you know, it's, it's a great statement for where we've got to. That, that's absolutely that's absolutely incredible and, and amazing to hear sort of the hand in glove piece you know sort of the assets on on, on board the vessel and then building the vessel for for the planes for example it must be really challenging though so just thinking about the future i mean how does how does the navy look at upcoming technology and incorporating that into future designs and integration within the within the current fleet whether that's so thinking about so sort of the next generation of vessels but also sort of sort of retrofitting to current ones it must be really hard to balance that sort of future capabilities piece with the with the current capabilities and the and the access to assets that you currently have and sort of taking taking not so much a gamble but just sort of forecasting what might happen in the future how 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 does the navy get its head around that no i i I agree, and I think you know sometimes in the past we may have been guilty of of not being able to do that as efficiently and in as a timely manner as we we would wish. And I think we've learned the lesson you know, in some areas the hard way. I mean, certainly on Queen Elizabeth, I, you know, what I'm struck by is that is the is the sort of additional capacity or untapped potential that exists here. So there are still big swathes of space here that is that is empty. Sailors are filling it with gym equipment and all sorts of stuff, but but it designed it was it was by, by conscious decisions put in like this, such that we can grow into it. So as technology evolves, we can fill that. So whether that is something to support drone technology or different weapon systems or different computer systems, there is a lot of potential in the ship to grow into. And I think that's something that we're absolutely embedding in the design of Type 26, our new frigate and others, so that you can you can grow, you know, we can't afford to only update every 15 years. It's got to be you know, in the same way almost as we update the iOS system on our phone, we've got to be able to update the systems on our warships. Fantastic. A bit of a personal question here is a bit of a bit of a segue, but how much digital twinning happens? Is, is, that, is that something that the Navy sort of looking at? 
we're trying to embrace, you know, digitize everything that we do, and, you know, much, much better and, and, and trying to mirror between platforms. Again, we've, we've been guilty in the past of having different systems on different platforms, which means sailors have got to go through whole new courses from one ship to another. If we can have much, much more commonality and, and an open architecture so you can plug in and then plug it you know, and play, then that makes it much, much more efficient, not only within the Navy, but also when we go around the world. So we're finding you know, our ability to suddenly turn up in the, in the Pacific and, and exercise with the Japanese and the Canadians at the same time. If there is common architecture and commonality in digital protocols, then this makes it much, much easier. Um, and the, and the, the, the alliance or partnership that will win the battle of tomorrow is the one that can, can harness the information, get the most accurate picture and make the most timely decisions on that. Uh, and that is all about, you know, commonality and digitization. Oh, really, really, really impressive to hear that. Thank you. Just turning to sort of working at sea, you, you've mentioned earlier in our, in our, in our chat around uh, being away from loved ones and a bit around the challenge of COVID as well. For those that sort of haven't had any exposure to the Royal Navy or haven't had any family members that have done it, what is, what is day-to-day life like at sea whilst on deployment? I mean, on a ship like Queen Elizabeth, it is, it, it's like a village community. Uh, I think it's, it's quite unique in the Navy. Uh, an army unit will tend to all be of one specialisation. Um, you know, it could be a logistics battalion or an engineering battalion. On an aircraft carrier, even on a ship, you have engineers, you have logisticians, you have the, the, the warfighting cadre, you have an executive cadre that run the, the routines, the medical team. So it is a small village. And on Queen Elizabeth, it's a, it's a village of 1,600 people living in a metal box 900 feet long. So it, it, it can test your patience, uh, absolutely. Uh, and there are days when you just need to find as much space as you can. But, but the what you quickly find, and I, you know, it's one of the reasons I, you know, I joined the Navy and I, and I love every day I have at sea, is, is the camaraderie and the friendships that you have on board a warship are like, like nothing you'll ever have again. And, and the ship will return in December, will all bomb us, but you will meet sailors in a different location or in a bar or something like that in the years to come. And there's just a look that you know with each other, you were on the ship at a certain time and you went through certain experiences. And it's something that is, is, is truly special, whether you're the captain or the most junior sailor. Um, so, you know, it's incredibly hard. Everybody is away from their loved ones, whether that's uh, husbands and wives, children, parents, whatever it may be. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we're all going through something common. And from captain to, um, you know, the junior sailors coming through as well and the cadets, you've got quite an important role in terms of keeping morale up across the carry strike group, I'd imagine. How, how, how do you keep everybody sort of positive? Yeah, it's, it's really hard. And, and as the commodore of the strike group, each of the ships is different. They all have a slightly different feel and flavour to them because it reflects the characters of those that are on board. And, and, it, and it's about setting broad parameters, giving them the, the guidelines, you know, the, the sort of parameters within which they could do their business and to seek every opportunity that they possibly can to, to make this. My challenge to them was to make it the most professionally but also personally rewarding experience we possibly can. And the, and the acid test is when we get back in December is to look everybody in the eye and say, you know, would you go away and do it again? And if the answer is yes, then arguably, you know, we've led our people successfully um, if they want to do it again. But it, you know, it's, a, it's a challenge and a balance in making it professionally and personally rewarding for the individual. 
and, and how much of that's around food and keeping mentally and uh, sort of physically well is, is there is there much to do on board the vessels to giving them the, their, their, their own mind space and a bit of exercise and things like that <laughs> food plays a disproportionate part in it for a sailor um you know i i think you know I, I was an aviator and a water officer but i you know as i became a commanding officer i quickly realized you know that the importance of the food and the galley i mean it, it is a it's the most thankless task for chefs you know tireless tireless work on board we work it's a 24-hour regime so it's almost four meals a day for 1600 people and and there is just something. It doesn't really matter what you put on the counter. There's always somebody that won't quite like it. So uh, you've got to have a very thick skin. But, but food is really important in the variety of it and increasingly the, the health of it as well. Our, our sailors are increasingly health conscious uh, and want the best possible diet. Sport, physical exercise is also really important uh, in a healthy body and a healthy mind. And then it's the other facilities that we can offer. So the ships or well, you know, the sailors will all have access to to IT so they can email home. There is a system whereby they're, they're given three minutes to telephone home as well. And also we have a this sort of fledgling Wi-Fi system so they can they can keep in contact with with WhatsApp and the like and, and run basic elements of their life through banking and uh, as much as they can. So um, we try and keep it as, as given as much normality as possible. Clearly, we may have to turn it on and off depending on where we are operationally. But we, you know, we try and offer them the, the, a good package in welfare terms so that they can keep in contact with home. So no plans to paint a, a tennis court or a football pitch on top of the aircraft carrier deck then? Well, of course, the beauty of Queen Elizabeth with her huge fly deck, and I think there's probably a number of images over taken in previous events, is you know, on the fly deck, it's four and a half acres. So other than when you fall over, you do graze your knee quite badly. But you know, there'll, there'll be... On, on those occasions we can get to the flight deck, there will be football and tag rugby and um, all sorts of other strange traditional naval sports like deck hockey and the like. You know, four laps of the upper deck is a mile. So, you know, with, with 1,600 people, there's all sorts of different sports and activities that will go on and, and they'll make the most of that. And the, and the same on the frigates ashore. I think one of our frigates has got a small dinghy that they bought with them. So if they get the opportunity, they put that in the water and, and sail around the ship. So, uh, yeah, sailors are pretty inventive. They'll find a way of, of entertaining themselves. Oh, fabulous. I'm, I'm going to ask a really silly question. And it's, it's, around, it's, it's, it's around that food piece and how, how you mentioned that food is so, so important. Where do you source your food from? I mean, do you source it locally from where you're being deployed? I mean, are you getting sort of you know, uh, different sort of fruit and veg and, and different sort of meats and things like that from the local area? Or does it does it come centrally from the UK through the Royal Food Auxiliary? I know that, that sounds like a really silly question. I should know the answer to that. So some will come centrally uh, from the UK, but a lot of the fresh food works. So the basic methodology is that we will use our fleet auxiliary ships and use them as a, on a delivery service. So they will, as, as we're moving from A to B, they might be shooting off to adjacent ports to to both uh, bunker for fuel, but also to bring on stores for emergent defects, but also food, mail, and all of that that follows us around. So um, you, you'll get to that stage after a few weeks at sea where, where the lettuce is turning slightly brown. And so uh, the logisticians will be looking to send one of the fleet auxiliary vessels into a port to top up. And, and then we can replenish it at sea. So the carrier herself can, you know, fundamentally can stay at sea for as long as uh, as we require, and then we'll just we'll, we'll just keep topping it up by having the the tankers coming and going from the group. 
Oh, amazing. Just before we sort of move on to sort of COVID quickly, diversity at sea. I believe HMS Queen Elizabeth was lit up in pride colours recently. Can you just talk about, can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I said we're a, we're a village community or small town, 1,600 people, and, and we reflect society. So from gender, from race, to everything, you know, we, we reflect it and we embrace it. And it's the strength of a warship. It's the, it's the color and character of its people. Uh, and and it, it absolutely makes us stronger for it. When I joined the Navy, it was the first intake that was trained together uh, in men and women at, at the Naval College in Dar- um, And it was all a bit of a novelty. Now, you know, People, people don't blink, uh, and we have female officers in key positions across my staff. With female officers commanding warships, flying aircraft, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so, you know, the, the, the recent support to the, to the Pride event, you know, I think just mirrors that. That diversity, diversity is the strength of the Royal Navy, and it's something that we've been able to, you know, stand behind and be confident, particularly on this deployment as you go around the world, because um, I think it's a strength that we should be hugely proud of. Oh, fabulous. Thank you. So that's really, really, really great to hear. Really, really great to hear. It would be remiss of me not to mention COVID. Clearly, it's had a, it's had a global impact, hasn't it? How, how has the situation impacted the carrier strike group? How do you deal with a, a virus like that on board a vessel? Has it been disrupted to operations? Um, it has disrupted us in so much as the plans we had and where we were hoping to visit. But, but I mean, the first thing we should stress is that I mean, Secretary of State pushed really hard. Uh, and we're hugely grateful and that, that we all deployed vaccinated. So every single member of the group in every ship uh, was double, double jabbed before we left the UK. That's offered us huge freedoms that we may not ordinarily have. So we have been able to, to almost live with COVID in that in, in those countries where um, we could get ashore, you know, we'll, we'll come back and one or two people would test positive. You know, that hasn't caused us that much concern because we've got the facilities and the ability. They would isolate, as you are doing at home in the UK. Uh, they do their 10 days and then they come back out. But nobody's been poorly. It's all been very uh, mild symptoms, uh, exactly as you would experience at home. So we've been able to live with it and, and carry on life to a large extent as normal when on board. The, the challenge has been, uh, particularly the further east we've gone, the Far East as a region is just not in the place of living with COVID in the way that maybe the United Kingdom and Europe is. They're much, much tighter. Taking vaccines not been as great. And so where it's been a real challenge is in hoping to visit some of those countries and then those life experiences for, for young sailors of going ashore and, and, and exploring and understanding different cultures has been difficult. And we haven't been able to get ashore in all of the ports that we'd like to. And some countries we're having to visit, we just simply haven't been able to get alongside full stop. So that's, that's where COVID has really impacted us and trying to bring we would ordinarily move people around the type of the strike group. You know, some people would come and go. Bringing stores in a mail is difficult in countries that are that are basically locked down. So it's added an extra challenge in that respect. But but thankfully, you know, once at sea and within the ship, you know, we've been able to live as close to normal as as, as we can because we've been double jabbed. I'm I'm in awe, Commodore. Of, you know, not only the role that you do with the with the carrier strike group, but also having to sort of contain a contain a virus as well is is just quite incredible. Um, oh, wow, I, I just want to be in your shoes, put it that put it that way. No, it's it's um, yeah, it's. Uh, I think I think we all naively thought it would all go away and would come back. 
and it would be different. But uh, it, it continues to linger. But um, but no, we're, we're working through it, and um, yeah, I think mean, we are genuinely sort of living with it now. Super. Um, just final final couple of questions for you. Um, we're obviously based in Singapore here. Can you talk a little bit about the UK's defence partnership with Singapore, perhaps, and maybe this sort of interactions with the Republic of Singapore Navy coming up? Absolutely. So, I mean, the, the, the relationship with Singapore goes on for has been going for you know, many, many years, and it's a it's a strong and deep relationship. Uh, you know, and the small footprint that we've had there for many years, we were able to exercise with the Singaporeans on our way east, exercising at sea with uh, their amphibious ship Resolution and Intrepid and Unity, and we're looking on the way back to to do some similar stuff but also this time exercise in the air, so to speak, with uh, Singaporean aircraft and our own F-35s. So that, that's a really key thing. All being well, we'll get some ships alongside as well on our return in, in a few weeks, uh, which I think will be great. I suspect, again, COVID will limit the level of interaction, but I just think, you know, presentation, just the sight of Queen Elizabeth alongside, and it would be a wonderful thing if we can achieve that and, and show the strength of the relationship. And then, of course, in and around that is the, is the sort of Basama exercise around the Five Powers Defence Agreement. Um, so, again, just showing our commitment um, you know, to the region. So, you know, Singapore is, is a huge part. It was one of the first anchor points we put uh, on the chart when we were originally planning the deployment. So it's great to be able to hit them on the way out and on the way back home. Oh, really, really great to hear, Commodore. Who inspires you? Because you've been hugely inspirational on this conversation, but who do you look up to and go, wow, they're doing an amazing job? Admirals um, and city officers that I've worked for, I think you always try and take a little bit of them. Some you think, I'd like to be like that. Some you think, I don't want to be like that. So you're, you're constantly learning. I'm a bit of a, an armchair sportsman as well. So I quite like looking at, at coaches that have been successful. So I've read quite a bit on um, Eddie Jones as a rugby coach and David Brailsford in cycling about motivating and getting the most out of teams and how you how you pull you know the, 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 a team together, a disparate crowd, and, and get the, sort of some of the parts is much much greater. So I I, I find people like that quite inspiring, pulling uh, pulling together teams. Oh, amazing! Uh, you might you might have answered this question. What are you reading and what are you watching at the moment? Ah, so in our last port call, we were able to download off the iPlayer um, HMS Vigil, the uh, the recent BBC drama about the submarine. So that oh, yeah. uh, that drew lots of commentary from from sailors about how realistic it was. So that that, that that's been really good fun. And then book wise, I'm reading a gift that um, was given to me by uh, the Dutch ambassador ahead of us deploying uh, and taking. The, the Dutch of Avertson with us called War, Trade and the State. And it's about the Anglo-Dutch conflict in the 1600s. So uh, pretty heavy going, but really fascinating. Oh, God, brilliant. So just a, f- a final question that we ask all of our guests, if I may. You've got so much experience. Like, uh, this, this conversation has been absolutely amazing. But with all of the experience that you've got across your career, if we could offer you the British Chamber of Commerce time machine and take you back to a point in your career where you could give your younger self some advice, at what point of your life would you revisit and what advice would you give yourself? Um, so I often get asked a very similar question, actually, when I, when I do some chats with our junior officers. And, uh, and, and I say, actually, that my first command of an of a, uh, offshore patrol that's later than seven is... It was probably, it sounds very odd, you know, it was, it was the best appointment I've had because it's, it was an appointment where you could just learn your uh, commanding an aircraft carrier or the strike group is, is, is one of the greatest privileges um, you know, the Navy could bestow on. But 
<laughs> the world his wife is watching you <laughs> and you can't afford to get it wrong. There was yeah. something lovely about being in a small patrol vessel sort of a little bit out of sight, out of mind and, and, and learning through your errors. And the, the ship's company were generally quite experienced and it was almost, I was a CEO, but they were almost teaching me. And I loved every single minute of it and, and you learned so much more about yourself um, and, and your strengths and your weaknesses. And you, as I say, you could sort of fail safely. So it was a wonderful two years, you know, my first command. And I think, you know, um, anybody that's listening to this will remember that's had the privilege of command. The first one is something really, really special, you know, where you really understand the sort of, you know, the, the leader you want to be. So I think that's where I would go back to. But what it taught me fundamentally was you just have to be yourself. And I think sometimes in organizations or and particularly the military we there's a danger that people become clones or think they've got to be somebody to be successful and the one thing it's taught me is that sailors and soldiers and air they're, they're just too smart they will see through you and if you're not yourself and you're not honest um about who you are and what you stand for they, they will see through and they'll, they'll think you're phony so um, it's about being honest being yourself, because in that way you can relax and be natural and whatever you've got inside you, you've got the most chance of getting it out and being successful. Oh, what, what, ama- what amazing advice to end on. Um, Commodore, thank you so, so much for your time today. That has been a, a really brilliant conversation around your career in the Royal Navy, the work around the carrier strike group, around technology and uh, HMS Queen Elizabeth, working at sea and some of the challenges there as well, relationship with Singapore and, and some advice as well. It's been absolutely fabulous to talk to you. Thank you so, so much for your time and your sharing. No, David, thank you very much indeed for inviting me. It's a real, real privilege. Um, sailors like talking about themselves, so uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And thank you very much indeed. Take care, Commodore. Thank you for listening to our podcast and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, don't forget to subscribe and rate our channel on Spotify, Apple, Google and all other podcast platforms. For more information about the Chamber, please visit www.britcham.org.sg Thank you.